the fact that the statements that they are making is kind of like, oh, this is like ethics commission thing. And so how is it an ethics commission thing when you're allowed to tell people you can't talk about a senator or a congressperson? You know, look at Virginia. What a hot mess it is. We've got the governor, the lieutenant governor, now their attorney general, all blackface, all racist. We all know Virginia was always a racist state. Always. But see, nobody seems to remember history. Democrats are the racists. And so them purporting and saying that we're racist is just deflection. That's what corrupt people do. They deflect. They, um, you know, make you think like the other side is the bad guy. And if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. Abraham Lincoln here is one of the most racist presidents we've had in modern history. And that's how they win. Right. Remember that. We're not going to make America great again. It was never that great. So now they're going to say, because control of virus is racist, it risks black people from going to the polls, right? So even if they do uh, simply, you know, say, hey, you're wearing a mask, you should be fine. Apparently, black people are more prone. You know what makes me wonder? So we know that the elderly uh, die really easy from anything, right? But... What if the Democrats are actually killing black people to get numbers? Like, what if they're going after black Americans? I mean, do you doubt that? Based on the pseudoscience of eugenics, more than 30 states passed laws allowing for the forced sterilization of so-called defectives. Syrian birth and took my child. And when they did that, they sterilized me. What do you think I'm worth? State officials declared Riddick feeble-minded and unfit to have children. Is birth control of such vital importance internationally? Is it just to save women suffering? Is that the only reason in your mind? Well, not entirely. The population question is a great concern today. And the, the rate at which uh, the birth, births come in to the... We're saving them now. At one time, when children died, they didn't have the food. Do you feel that birth control is essential to keep millions of people across the world from starving? Well, I think the birth control, if you keep your population uh, more or less static until you pick up your resources. Main reason is because I was poor and out and black. I believe that with all of my heart. The problem is that the population is growing the fastest where people are less able to deal with it. So it's in the very poorest places that you're going to have a tripling in population by 2050. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are 17 targets we must meet by 2030 to ensure decent lives for all on a healthy planet. Right now, it's expected we will fail. One reason for that is the growth in our global population. Everyone deserves a long, healthy life. But when governments are poor, health systems buckle under the pressure of growing populations. Meanwhile, women and children are dying because of barriers to family planning. There is enough of everything for everyone on our planet now, if the richest nations take less and share more. And so their ability to feed, educate, provide jobs, stability, protect the environment in those locations mean uh, you know, they're faced with an almost impossible problem. Northern Nigeria, Yemen, Chad. What is Agenda 2063? Agenda 2063 is the master plan for transforming Africa into a global powerhouse of the future by the year 2063. 
and ensuring that Africa's development is driven by investments that are sustainable and benefits all people. There has been a revolutionary change in demographic research, partly because in the mid, middle of the last century, around 1945, very few countries had good population data. Something like 70 years ago, population was considered one of the biggest, biggest issues. Demographers were well aware that following World War II, there would be a sort of explosion in the growth of the world's population, in part because of, well, really driven by the knowledge that had been developed about control of disease and uh, keeping people alive and protecting them from premature death uh, is of course one of the great accomplishments of the 20th century. There have been huge changes, not only in population research, but in population dynamics. The world is so different from what it was just a few decades ago. It has been a, a demographic revolution. There was a big event in 1974. It was a World Population Conference in Bucharest. And there was discussion about uh, population policy versus uh, development policy. And the slogan it was, development is the best contraceptive. And after long, long, long debates, it was agreed that population affects development, but also development affects population. In an article published Tuesday in the journal Bioscience, the scientists wrote that planet Earth is, quote, facing a climate emergency. Quote, the world population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced. Achieving a sustainable global population matters. If we do, we can all have the dignity, security, and well-being envisioned by the Sustainable Development Goals. Fertility causing tetanus vaccines reared their heads yet again, this time fronted by NASA presidential candidate Raila Odinga, who revisited a claim made by the Catholic Church in Kenya in 2014 and 2015 that the Ministry of Health had administered tetanus vaccines contaminated with a hormone during a countrywide anti tetanus drive, the hormone allegedly leading to infertility among the women who had received the vaccine. Odinga offering as proof an alleged analysis of the samples which he claimed had been obtained from the laboratories of four organizations AgriQuest, Nairobi Hospital, the University of Nairobi and Lancet Kenya. Documents availed by the National Super Alliance appearing to show varying amounts of the hormone in individuals that were tested. Test results in our possession indicate that some of the women who got this vaccination have since sought further tests and obtained results indicating that they can never carry a pregnancy unless a process of reversing the effects is initiated. In 2014 and 2015, as the government undertook a nationwide anti-tetanus drive targeting women aged between 15 and 49, Kenyan Catholic leaders questioned the need for the program, arguing that there was no tetanus crisis in the country. These women have two things in common. They are HIV positive and they say they were sterilized without their consent. This weekly therapy session helps them recover from the trauma. Rhoda Musao is 40, childless and infertile. Her first child died young and her second was stillborn. She was still recovering when her husband told the doctor to sterilize her. The doctor told me they were cleaning my stomach. I don't know what happened. 
I just don't know. I learned about what happened six months later. A woman rights group has published a report based on interviews with more than 40 HIV-positive women in Nairobi and Western Kenya. The women accuse some doctors in government hospitals and others in hospitals run by aid agencies of performing unauthorized sterilizations. Teresia Njoki was a report lead researcher. She says that there was no consent, women were misinformed, or sterilization was set as a condition for receiving free or discounted antiretroviral drugs and milk formula. She also says the practice goes back two decades, so many more women could have been affected. The issue of sterilization has brought double stigma for the women. Remember we are living with HIV, then the issue of not being able to give birth. And this is Africa, where a woman who is not able to give birth, and again you are HIV positive, then you are no longer a woman. On June 27, 1973, a lawsuit was filed that brought national attention to the issue of racially targeted sterilization abuse. In the late 1960s and into the 70s, civil rights activists noticed a widespread trend among women of color. It was sterilization. In June of 73, the Ralph sisters, 14-year-old Minnie Lee and 12-year-old Mary Alice, who was mentally disabled, were sterilized without their knowledge or consent. These African-American girls had the procedure done at a Montgomery, Alabama family planning clinic that received federal funds. Clinic workers deceived the girl's illiterate mother into believing that she was consenting to the girls getting birth control shots. Two years earlier, the Ralph sisters had been given birth control injections as part of an experimental trial, again, without their consent. After the federal government ended that trial, the clinic nurses decided that the girls should be sterilized. The girls were targeted for sterilization because they were poor, black, and living in public housing number of people infected. Flu is now widespread in almost every single state and nearly 10 million people have become ill so far. 4,800 of those people have died. And then between school and daycare and other activities, those germs are just churning right now. Dr. Rachel Haley with Lee Summit Medical Center takes a look at this season so far. We have seen dramatic spikes in flu illnesses on both the Missouri and Kansas side. In fact, our nine care nows have recorded 1,200 cases of the flu since December 1st. And nationally, we've got approximately 9.7 million people that have caught the flu. 80,000 people have gone in the hospital, and we've had 400 deaths. Data from the Rhode Island Department of Health shows there were nearly 1,400 influenza hospitalizations in the 2017-18 season, roughly 1,000 the next two years, yet so far this season, just two. There were six... So I thought I'd stop it right there, because today we're going to discuss an angle that I don't know why it hasn't been discussed yet. Sterilization, forced sterilization, is actually legal in the United States of America. And we're going to talk about that because it's very important that we see eugenics in America for what it is. So let's continue this clip. Steve flu deaths three years ago, this season, none. Scientists say the flu has almost disappeared in the southern hemisphere. It's another thing that suddenly started to disappear in Korea. The flu. 
they're willing to put you in jail in your home, throw us into poverty, shut your small business down, make you go broke, make them make you beg for money. They are willing to kill you to maintain power and they don't care because there is one cure and you're the cure. Think about it. We heard all these doctors come out, right? And state that uh, bottom line is, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine works. Not for COVID. All this foolishness is not, does not need to happen. There is a cure for COVID. There is a cure for COVID. It's called hydroxychloroquine. It's called zinc. It's called Zitromax. And it is time for the grassroots to wake up and say, no, we're not going to take this any longer. Yes, we can use security measures. Yes, we can be careful. I'm all for that. We all are. But I think the important thing is we need to not act out of fear. We need to act out of science. We need to do it. We need to get it done. Finally, uh, the barrier, and I hate to say this, but the barrier to getting our kids back in school is not going to be the science. It's going to be the uh, national unions, the teachers union, the National Education Association, other groups who are going to demand money. And listen, I think that it's fine to give people money for PPE and different things in the classroom, but some of their demands are really ridiculous. They're talking about where I'm from in California, the UTLA, which is the United Teachers of Los Angeles, is demanding that we defund the police. What does that have to do with education? My name is Sarah Abbott and I'm Sunrise's Team Support and Culture Director and just incredibly glad to see how many people are on this call tonight. My name is Barshani and I am Sunrise's Executive Director. Um, I am really glad to see almost 600 of you on this call. We are currently witnessing, you know, an, an uprising against police violence and the murder of, of Black people in this country. Um, so I'm going to share a little bit about uh, the difference between some of what we're seeing and hearing in the media um, and what's really happening on the ground in Minneapolis. Um, so I grew up in rural Minnesota, where I'm calling from today, which as the Dakota elder shared with us at the beginning of the call, is Dakota land. And I lived in South Minneapolis for many years um, in all of those burning buildings that we're seeing on Lake Street. Um, I've driven by or shopped at those stores hundreds of times. Um, and yes, this is like one of my beloved communities. Um, and what I think is so important to understand is that what we are seeing is not just um, chaos, we're actually seeing resistance and organizing. This account called Don't Shoot Us, which was posing as a part of the Black Lives Matter movement, used all of these platforms to effectively create a, a, an ecosystem where these messages, highlighting police brutality, trying to galvanize African-American outrage over police brutality, those would be reinforced across a, a network of platforms. And with some influence, actually, we look and we see, you know, YouTube videos that together were viewed more than 350,000 times, a Facebook page that had more than 250,000 likes. All of these linked to each other, linked through an account uh, that was registered to an address that actually turned out to be a shopping mall in Illinois. That Tumblr page promoted a Pokemon Go a competition where if you went to sites where there had been alleged incidents of police brutality and you named your Pokemon after those victims, for instance, naming Pikachu Eric Garner, 
if you won that competition, this promotion suggested, you might win a free Amazon Prime card. Um, and what we know is that uprisings, including including actions like burning buildings, um, are legitimate and powerful forms of resistance um, and are resisting brutal and violent and dehumanizing systems. Smoke rising above Washington, D.C. on the sixth night of protests. On the ground, a large fire just a couple hundred meters from the White House, one of many dramatic images on this night. The province tracks every single case, and so far, not one has been linked to those recent protests. So why is that? Well, the credit goes to a combination of things, according to the provincial health officer. They were outside for short periods of time, for one, and most kept their distance and wore a mask. All right, so welcome, everybody, to the final session of our day four, um, or or four-day crash course to defund the police. Get something to take notes. We want to make sure that this is a lot of great information and that you remember it um, so that you can continue your abolition work. Also, um, if any of you guys were wondering about music, so basically uh, all of our slides this week, uh, each day is themed after a uh, a Disney Channel movie or Disney Channel show. So today uh, our title slide is High School Musical, so. Defunding the police is not just a demand, it's a strategy, a way to win abolition of policing, prisons, detention centers, and the values and ideas that criminalize black, indigenous people of color, people in poverty, and the working class. In Burnsville, there's a book called Something Happened in Our Town that was read to fourth graders. This book warns students that police are mean to black people, but nice to white people. Cops stick up for each other, it says, and they don't like black men. When a character asks why a black man was shot, the character's sister responds, it wasn't a mistake, the cops shot him because he was black. I should add that this book is also listed by the Minnesota Department of Education, so it is likely being read in other classrooms as well. Loudoun County, Virginia, the epicenter of the fight over critical race theory being taught in America, we've seen countless parents fed up with a program that suggests white kids should be apologetic for being white. And black kids should feel oppressed even when there is no sign of oppression. In Loudoun County, it's crossed the line. Apparently the teachers union is demanding teachers rat out other teachers for their opinions if those opinions don't agree with critical race theory. And get this, I'm not talking about in the classroom. No, these commies want teachers to turn in fellow teachers who say things in their personal lives. Don't believe me? Just watch as Laura Morris, a fifth grade teacher in Loudoun County School System, resigns because she can't take it anymore. So since my contract outlines the power that you have over my employment in Loudoun County Public Schools, I thought it necessary to resign in front of you. School board, I quit. I quit your policies, I quit your trainings, and I quit being a cog in a machine that tells me to push highly politicized agendas on our most vulnerable constituents, the children. I will find employment elsewhere. I encourage all parents and staff in this county to flood the private schools. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That is just sad. When the teachers union said they were focusing on division this year, I had no idea they meant critical race theory. All right, hello, Avec. My name is Mariah. I am a teacher in Sun. And I am Greg, your principal. We are representing Avec's Diversity and Equity Committee, 
And this short video is going to tell you about racial affinity groups. An affinity group is designated a designated safe space where everyone in the group shares a particular particular identity. These groups can be based on gender, sexual orientation, or language, to name a few. At ABEC, we are going to start with racial affinity groups. Racial affinity groups can provide white people the space to accept their own whiteness without shame or defensiveness and to build healthy anti-racist identities. We have to design a curriculum and curricular experiences here for children that allow them to uncover the fundamental issues of our time, of which racism is one. Not to cover these issues, but to uncover them. Affinity groups mean that, like, when you come together, it means that you aren't just by yourself and you're not different. There's a ton, a lot, there's a lot of people that um, are like you. I think one of the most important things that white people, white students, really need to think about is their own identity and how to articulate who they are, um, where they came from, what their story is, and that is some of the most important work I think we can do with white students in thinking about how to help them become good at it. It's one way for you to see people who have your and other people's race or religion. We have lunch together with people who um, are that race. Sometimes the work that we're doing in being white allies, I think, um, can be difficult, and I think that we all have to be honest with ourselves about why that can be difficult. Um, from my perspective, sometimes I don't know the answer or feel like I might not have the right answer. Um, and so I think always digging deeper and knowing yourself well and striving to understand what I white identity is and white privilege is um, can help in the ally work that you do. I, I try my best to be a white ally, you know. I, I don't I, I don't like say, oh, oh no, you're going, come on. Why do you have to go? I mean, would you, wouldn't you rather have lunch with me? But I know they would much rather go to the affinity groups and if not, I shouldn't say that to make them take back that decision that's so important to who they are. And today we're talking about Dr. Kellogg. Now, some of you might have heard of Dr. Kellogg before, or if not, you've heard of the Kellogg Company and the cereal that they've made. And we're not talking about cereal today. We're actually talking about his beliefs and his beliefs in eugenics. Our collection items about eugenics generally have to do with Dr. Kellogg, which is strange. You know, you think of cornflakes and uh, sometimes exercise programs and healthy living, but you don't always think so much about other things, other kinds of philosophies that he might have been involved with. Kellogg really comes into the picture full force here. The first National Conference on Race Betterment, this was held in 1914 at, in Battle Creek at Kellogg Sanitarium. Um, and this is the full program. This contains all of the speeches that were given by Kellogg and lots and lots of other people. There are names you'll recognize like Melville Dewey and his wife. They both spoke. And the conference topics cover everything from 
how to eat healthy and how to get enough exercise and why that's so important, right down to something called the eugenics uh, registry, which was something that Kellogg was very interested in developing, and we'll talk more about that soon. One of the pages, these are two different copies of the same book, um, one part of this includes tables. Um, the eugenicists really tried to come up with data to support their views. Sometimes they had to kind of create the data to support their views. But this is really awful. It's uh, tables that show the rate of efficiency of proposed segregation and sterilization programs. So, so not, not only were the eugenicists trying to promote the... Allow me to stop this video for a second. Now, the reason that we're taking a very close look at this is we've done this before. I've showed this before. It's important to reinforce this, eugenics. Because when we think eugenics, we just think, oh, they just want to get rid of the black people. Mm. The only way to defeat the darkness is to bring light. And you need the darkness in order to be able to see light. How would you know it was light if you didn't see it? In contrast, right? Well, eugenics and testing and it's not just about color. It's about status. It's actually legal in the United States. Allow me to share with you this short clip that someone put together. Because, you know, today I was kind of just looking at my old posts from like forever and a day through a rocket Guys, I still have that, a Rocket Mail account. <clears throat> We're talking early 2000s. And I was having a conversation about Oliver Wendell Holmes. And I was like, oh, you know, I haven't introduced him to you. And, you know, even though I told you about eugenics, told you about what the point of this whole vaccine is, eugenics. It's important that we get the whole picture and understand how the law works. And then this way we can understand how the Supreme Court works because it's the Supreme Court that actually said that it's okay to sterilize people. So let's take a look at this quick clip. Eugenics is about targeting the weak. We all hear the word feeble-minded, black, minority, but it's just... Anyone that's a problem. Now, the reason that I was discussing Justice uh, Wendell Holmes was because the discussion that I was having in that thread, I believe it was in, in 2000, was about free speech and how one of the most liberal judges changed his mind on free speech. Uh, it's one of the most historic dissents, I guess, um, as they say, apparently. Anyway, uh, and it's important because that goes hand in hand with eugenics. And you're going to be like, what? Wait, you'll get it. So let's, let's take a wild look at this uh, docu right here. At the turn of the 20th century, rapid industrialization and urbanization led to a social upheaval defined by goals for a civilization free of violence, disease, and mental ailments. However, the means by which this utopian society would be attempted would include some of the most profound ethical violations in the history of the United States.
president was behind it, liberals were behind it, conservatives were behind it. Even the Catholic Church at one point was behind it. Intense growth of American industry, agricultural mechanization, and widespread immigration led to the first major migration away from the farms and into the city, which was now expanding faster than adequate housing could be provided. The solution to the modern problems of an industrialized society required increased government involvement in the social sphere, a philosophy known as progressivism. The construct of scientific management offered a methodical means of social engineering. Geneticists of the age could prove, through the use of human pedigrees and their knowledge of plant and animal genetics, that degeneracy was an inheritable trait. It seemed only right that if a society free of all mental and physical ailments, free of violence and crime, illiteracy and foolishness, it seemed only right to end the reproductive capabilities of people expressing these traits. Eugenics was the result of an America unwilling to make social changes, an upper class fearful of its laboring counterparts. Eugenics placed the blame of a social quandary on individual races and classes, and thus freed from culpability the industrial, scientific, and political barons of the time. Cold Spring Harbor, New York, 1910. Charles B. Davenport, along with Harry H. Laughlin, both biologists and members of the American Breeders Association, found the Eugenics Record Office with financial help from the Carnegie Institution. The ERO would be the headquarters of eugenic research in the United States for the next 34 years. Using various research methods, including human pedigrees, hereditary questionnaires, interviewing groups of special interest such as circus performers, and collecting census data, the ERO was able to justify the administration of eugenic laws nationwide, including immigration and marriage restrictions, race segregation, and forced sterilization of criminals and other undesirables. The ERO, however, was not only able to justify the eugenics atrocities, but integrated them into popular culture to make eugenics and related terms such as race hygiene household words. Popular literature published in the 20s often donned eugenics in their subject matter, such as these manuals on raising a healthy family. Clergymen preached of the necessity for good marriages. Perhaps even more disturbing were the contests held at many state fairs, where awards were given to the fittest family. Those with the purest pedigrees and, undoubtedly, the most attractive phenotypes would receive awards, such as this medal with an inscription reading, Yay, I have a goodly heritage. The eugenics movement um, spawned lots of um, people who were considered, even in their own time, out on the fringe. Uh, who, who even endorsed such things as euthanasia, but that was not a mainline part of the movement. It certainly became parts of the movement internationally, but not so much here in America. On March 9, 1907, the Indiana State Senate, in a vote of 28 to 16, made history by being the first jurisdiction in the world to force the sterilization of citizens it deemed unfit. Unfit to exist, unfit to reproduce. Connecticut was soon to follow, by the time Laughlin of the ERO had published his suggestion on how to implement legislation for forced human sterilization, 12 states had already put into place sterilization laws of their own. By 1924, 3,000 socially inadequate people had been sterilized. That same year, based on Laughlin's model, Aubrey E. Strode drafted Virginia's Eugenical Sterilization Act in an attempt to rid the state of defective persons. It passed in Virginia's General Assembly by a landslide. 
Immediately, the Virginia Colony for the Epileptic and Feeble-Minded selected 17-year-old Carrie Buck to be the first human sterilized under the act. Carrie had a feeble-minded child, the result of a raping by one of her relatives, and was daughter of a feeble-minded mother, Emma, already a resident on the Virginia Colony. Carrie, purportedly carrying the genetic traits of feeble-mindedness and sexual promiscuity, was a fine candidate, as the law stated those to be sterilized must be probable potential parents of socially inadequate offspring. Carrie's feeble-mindedness was based on a male disposition by Laughlin, who had never met Carrie, and her sexual promiscuity was based on the testimony of her schoolteacher that she sent flirtatious notes to schoolboys. Carrie became the first person in Virginia to be sterilized under the new law on October 19, 1927. In the words of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, official deliverer of the opinion of the United States Supreme Court in the case of Buck v. Bell, it is better for all of the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Vivian, Carrie's feeble-minded daughter, received bees on her first grade report card. Buck v. Bell justified the sterilizations of over 8,000 Virginians. Over the history of the United States, 33 states have enacted statutes under which 60,000 Americans underwent compulsory sterilizations. To this day, Buck v. Bell has never been overruled. Nazi Germany embraced the eugenics movement from the United States and just upped it in its efficiency. It should now be apparent that Germany's racial theories did not take place in a vacuum. Nor can the fundamental philosophies and beliefs that would eventually lead to the atrocities of the Nazi state be attributed solely to German authorities. In fact, German scientists expressed a great affinity towards U.S. eugenic laws. A young Adolf Hitler wrote positively of the U.S.'s immigration restrictions, more specifically how the law refuses immigration on principle by simply excluding certain races from naturalization in his book Mein Kampf. Shortly prior to mobilizing the most comprehensive eugenics legislation in modern history, Gerhard Wagner, head of the National Socialist Physician League, stated that America's eugenic policies should be used as a model for Germany to follow. Marie Kopp of the American Committee on Maternal Health proclaimed that the Nazi system of seeking out those to be sterilized was administered in entire fairness and was formulated after careful study of the California experiment which had been responsible for 2,500 of the 3,000 involuntary sterilizations in the U.S. prior to 1924. The ERO boasted on how the German statute on race hygiene read almost identical to Laughlin's model sterilization law. Laughlin had such a significant impact on Nazi racial legislature that he was awarded an honorary degree from the University of Heidelberg. Laughlin thanked the university for reaffirming the common understanding of German and American scientists of the nature of eugenics. This common understanding would be translated into the law on preventing hereditarily ill progeny, which would be responsible for over 375,000 sterilizations in the Nazi state. A number so impressive, one American eugenics advocate complained, the Germans are beating us at our own game. The sterilization program of the Nazi state, modeled after Laughlin's law and other U.S. eugenic theories, would be a gross prelude to the exterminations of the Holocaust. But even before the gas chambers were opened for the racist and anti-Semitic persecutions we know all too well, they were opened in October 1939 for the systematic murder of the mentally ill citizens of Germany. Sadly, this practice was not faced with nearly as much stigmatism within the states, as euthanasia had long been discussed by American eugenicists as a solution for the feeble-minded. 
So when, when people saw how eugenics can easily be abused by the power of the state, they said, that's it, this is a, a monstrous idea that you should keep a distance from. It is now the dawn of the 21st century, and advancements in technology and medicine have excelled beyond even the most ambitious of projections. Science that eugenicists of the 20th century could only have dreamed of appear in our news every single day. ...of stem cell research... ...and picking the genes of our children. Cloning of embryos for the destruction. We've discovered stem cells in a new place. The embryo has a genetic disease. Genetic test. Is it a danger? It's always a danger when there are technologies that can be used and abused. And I think that the history of the eugenics movement tells us when a technology actually exists, people will try to use it, sometimes for reasons it was never intended to be used. With the mapping of the human genome, prenatal testing, implantation genetic diagnosis, therapeutic cloning, and stem cell therapy, we find ourselves entering a promising world of genetic medicine. It is with this great power, however, that comes the need for even greater responsibility, sensitivity, and, and accountability. accountability. Humanity truly does now possess a powerful tool for good. However, we must heed the warnings sounded by the coercive legislation and beliefs of the eugenics movement before we may venture into the frontier of modern genetic medicine. Tragedy may very well give way to triumph, but how that will be recorded in the history books of tomorrow will be determined by our actions today. So what are our actions today? We've allowed them to genetically modify all our foods and our children and force those vaccines. Now, while there are discussions and lawsuits uh, pursuing the termination of such things. I want you to understand that this is ongoing. Even in today's news, we have the Nigerian military forcing abortions on over 10,000 women who escaped Boko Haram. Remember, it's those women that they... They enslaved this uh, Islamist group that's beheading all the Christians and then they kidnap these women and make them their slaves and part of their, like, you know, harem of wives. They're actually forced sterilizing them. In fact, uh, Reuters actually spoke to a dozen people that were undergoing this, uh, girls that escaped the Islamist groups uh, and were in the custody of the Nigerian military. And apparently the Nigerian military has created this secret program. The women and the girls that were saved uh, ranged from, you know, being a couple weeks pregnant to eight months pregnant. Some women were as young and they're not women, they're kids. They were 12, right? And <clears throat> so these women, uh, you know, uh, one victim actually uh, who was in her 20s said that she was repeatedly raped by the jihadis and she was about four months pregnant when the Nigerian soldiers uh, rescued her. She said she felt really, really happy for the first time in her life that she was safe, not going to be beaten and raped. But about a, about a week later, they sent her to this cockroach-filled room at some military barracks and um, uh, people in uniform just gave them mysterious injections and pills they were not allowed to say no. For her, she said, um, after about four hours, she felt like there was fire in her stomach and then she started bleeding. Um, the women uh, would just wash down, you know, like a squat toilet and they would have the abortions on their own. 
um, and they were threatened to maintain their silence, part of this secret program uh, that the Nigerian army is conducting. These abortions are being done without consent, without telling them that they're doing it. Um, and that's according to witnesses. Now the UN is all up in arms, right? But there was one woman that was about eight months pregnant and they gave her whatever they gave the other women. Um, apparently this, this woman, uh, she started to scream in pain after they gave her whatever. And um, she was crying. She was screaming in pain. And then she stopped. And she just stopped breathing. And they literally just dug a hole and threw her in there. This is happening today. This is today's news. Right? Today's news. Now, many of them are because they don't want to take care of the kids. They want to get rid of the kids. They should be asking these women, regardless if the child is of rape, it's a crime. So I don't understand how these Christian, alleged Christian soldiers are saving them, but making them kill their babies in a secret program. This is happening right now as we're speaking. There are women living in these cockroach-infested barracks getting their babies killed without asking them and without telling them. They just, they just are. Now, we're talking about eugenics, and uh, for some reason, it's always seen as, oh, black versus white. It's actually uh, those that know better and, and those that listen. Those that know better decide who's more obedient and listens and decide to design the working drone colonies and those that live off the backs of the working drone colonies. The Petri dish babies like, uh, like Obama, very specific. We'll get into that at some point. While many of us think it's designer to be able to choose our children, this is not the case. It's actually to design mankind as a proper slave as, as, um, yesterday's, uh, you know, digital guest showed Harari that the humans are hackable animals. They'll force you to work for them or your children or their children. They'll design it that way to stop you from asking questions and just be obedient. Almost sounds like stuff we found in the those green tablets by Hermes, Toth, whatever, right? Kind of said the same thing, right? On those scrolls and those tablets and the Sumerian ones where they're like, yeah, they genetically modify. Oh, no, 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 stop. We're not getting into that today. So it's about modification. And like I said, the best way to to be able to modify is not to try to engineer something amazing and mimic it, but get something smarter to strive to get to it. And this is where we're at. This has happened. Why am I telling you this? Well, we already saw with uh, the control of virus what they've done. You've seen the extent that they've gone to, and there are a lot of people sick. Guys, my kid is sick again. Fever, coughing. I don't know what these kids are generating with all their vaccine shedding. Their parents are giving them flu vaccines. They're totally destroying their children. I'm, I'm, you know, everyone, everyone, everyone is getting sick. Those that haven't been vaccinated are uh, just constantly getting these new versions of colds. Now, having said that, there's a way to challenge the vaccines that I didn't even think of at one point. Obviously, it's the religious angle of 
my religion, my choice, my body, F.U., which my friend Lieutenant Colonel Weiss is actually fighting for within the Air Force. But another way to put it, this could be considered eugenics, testing, and sterilization. This could be the way we overturn Buck versus Bell. Now, many, many people think that Buck versus Bell was kind of overturned by Skinner versus Oklahoma, which is not true. So I, I, we need to talk about that. We also need to talk about how the Supreme Court at one point, right, had justified Japanese intermittent camps. Now, the reason I say this is because it's very imperative. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, is going to be coming into focus, studying what he had done and said and ended on. His great dissent is quite important. But I want you to see these points when it comes to your health care and your choices. Intermittent camps being justified. These vaccines. Forced what? Well, they'll say forced testing, sterilization. Testing and sterilization. This is forced testing, which can be classified as eugenics because only the strong will survive and many have problems. I believe if anyone was to find damages, they should fight up Buck versus Bell, backing it up with Skinner versus Oklahoma. So let's take a look at those cases because it's very important that we take another angle. It has to be targeted. When you're targeting to change the law, what you have to do is ensure that you're laser focused and you're talking about the right things. Here we go. Welcome. This is Psych. Did you know that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional for the state of Virginia to basically sterilize people against their will? Did you also know that the Supreme Court decision led to the compulsory sterilization of roughly 70,000 people within the United States? These practices also didn't really stop until around the 70s or so. And I know that many of you may be thinking something like, well, maybe these people were so, let's say, dangerous to society that the state just didn't have any other choice. But this was simply not the case. This practice was done because these people were deemed by tests to be feeble-minded and we basically had to enact this compulsory sterilization kinds of programs in order to prevent these people from having children in an effort to purify the race. This is but another example of how testing coupled with a dangerous ideology has led to massive abuse. So join me today I'm going to talk about the case of Carrie Buck, a 17-year-old girl in the state of Virginia, and it was her case that led to the Supreme Court decision. So her story begins with the eugenics movement. In 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species, and this book really transformed the way in which we think about ourselves and our place within 
let's say, the universe itself in some sense. And his cousin, Sir Francis Galton, began to ask questions about the hereditary nature of mental traits, such as intelligence. And one of the things that Galton noticed was that what he referred to as eminent families tended to produce other eminent people. And instead of attributing this to perhaps environmental circumstances or social circumstances or some other kinds of circumstances, he believed instead that these kinds of traits or characteristics was something that we would inherit. So in 1869, he published the book referred to or called Hereditary Genius. I just want to take a quote from this book to show you the kinds of views of Sir Francis Galton, who was really the founder. In fact, he's the one who coined the term for this eugenics movement. So he says, I propose to show in this book that a man's natural abilities are derived by inheritance. And so he basically starts to compare us to other, you know, humans, to other forms of life. So to, so consequently to obtain by careful selection, a permanent breed of dogs or horses gifted with peculiar powers of running or of doing anything else. So it would be quite practicable to produce a highly gifted race of men by judicious marriages during several consecutive generations. Since we can, let's say, selectively breed animals to obtain desirable characteristics, then Galton believed that we should be able, why not do this with people? Eugenics was the idea of breeding human stock to quote, give more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable. Galton established the anthropocentric laboratory around 1884-1885 in London to collect biological data and other forms of data. And he collected data on say nine or so 10,000 people to investigate some of these ideas. And he was eventually joined by Carl Pearson uh, where they eventually established the first journal in this area, a journal that's still in existence today, Biometrica. And Pearson even had harsher views than Galton giving you a quote here when he says superior and inferior races cannot coexist. If the former are to make effective use of global resources, then the latter must be extirpated. So in other words, the, what he's referring to as the inferior races, um, ultimately must be uprooted and destroyed. By the turn of the 20th century, this eugenics movement was alive and well in the United States. So evidence from mental testing was used to support two different ideas. First, many argued that the United States would need to take 
precautions in order to kind of protect itself from what was deemed these external impurities, external contamination. And this led to various kinds of immigration policies. Secondly, the advocates of eugenics also said that we are going to have to do something about the people here, which led to programs such as compulsory sterilization and the sterilization of basically 70,000 or so people. So let's begin with the Immigration Act of 1924. Um, this was developed by Representative Albert Johnson of Washington, and the bill passed with large support. Johnson argued that it's become necessary that the United States cease to become an asylum, and the act limited the number of immigrants according to uh, countries of origin based upon a census that was conducted in 1890, which was prior to these waves of Slavic and Italian immigrants. And although this, this act basically reflected this xenophobia and fear of contamination from external impurities, and now whether testing played a role in this act is really questionable. And I'm, I'm going to leave you uh, um, with a link in a description below to give you some evidence of that and so forth. But still, many within the field of testing supported these notions. So here's an interesting quote from Lewis Terman, who was one of the founders of the Stanford Binet intelligence test. A quote from 1922, the immigrants who have recently come to us in such large numbers from Southern and Southeastern Europe are distinctly inferior mentally to the Nordic and Alpine strains we have received from Scandinavia, Germany, Great Britain, and France. The samplings we have received do not, of course, afford convincing proof that the Mediterranean race as a race is inferior. It is quite possible, for example, that our Nordic immigrants have been drawn from the upper social classes and our Mediterranean immigrants from the lower social strata. However this may be, we owe it to the future of our civilization to set a minimal mental standard for our immigrants from every source. No nation can afford to overlook the danger that the average quality of its germ plasm may gradually deteriorate as a result of unrestricted immigration. In other words, evidence derived from mental testing was used by academics from prominent universities to argue in favor of eugenics and to support a need to protect the United States from external impurities. Many horrible ideas come from academics at prominent institutions. Internal impurities could be handled, at least in part, by programs such as compulsory sterilization. Carrie Buck was born in Charlottesville, Virginia and her mother was institutionalized. By the age of 17, Carrie was selected as the first person to be sterilized by the state of Virginia.
Carrie was pregnant out of wedlock because she had been raped and deemed, um, she was also deemed feeble-minded because her IQ test indicated that she had a score of 50, whereas a score of 70 was um, considered to be defective. Carrie was sent to the same institution as her mother, which was referred to as the Virginia Colony. The Virginia Colony was head by a man named Albert Pretty, and Pretty saw this as an opportunity to orchestrate a legal precedent to basically establish the legitimacy of compulsory sterilization. And essentially what happened was a kangaroo court was orchestrated where Pretty had one of his colleagues represent Carrie, um, who was judged to be, like I said, mentally defective with a mental age of nine years old. Later evidence actually showed this to be a complete farce, um, given that she had previously performed quite well in school. And Carrie was not only judged as being defective, but she was also judged as being promiscuous and morally delinquent for having a child out of wedlock, despite the fact that she was raped. You see, Pretty wanted to demonstrate that these sterilizations were needed, um, given that these issues were hereditary since Carrie's mother was also institutionalized. And what they also wanted to do was establish that the baby was defective as well. So a Red Cross nurse testified in order to give evidence that the baby's also defective. She said that the baby was below average and quote unquote, not quite normal. The lawyers for Carrie kept appealing the case so that they could set this legal precedent and it eventually reached the Supreme Court in 1929, where the court concluded that three generations of imbeciles are enough. On October 19th, 1927, Carrie was taken to an infirmary where she received drugs and anesthesia to keep her from getting sick. In a later interview, Carrie told um, she basically said that the doctor told her that if I wanted to live, I would have to go through the operation, but I didn't want to go through the operation. I kicked against it after she recovered, which took say two or three weeks or so. She had fully realized that this was the operation to make her sterile. Carrie was released not long after her sterilization. The Virginia law was upheld by the Nazis as a model to be followed. And in fact, the originator, the original figure of this law, received an honorary degree from the University of Heidelberg for his tribute to the quote, unquote, science of racial cleansing. It was not until 2002 that Virginia made an apology for the damage done by their sterilization program. But Kamala hasn't, nor has the Supreme Court overturned it. This is very important. While we're talking sterilization, 
the people of the United States have not realized the extent of this experiment that they conducted. Now, before we just pop over for a break, I want to introduce you to Wendell Holmes just so that you can understand who we're speaking about and how he was important in that and what's coming in respects to free speech. I followed up on a recommendation given by Mr. Leo Lesser of the YouTuber Law Channel for a book called The Great Descent by Thomas Healy. The book may be a tad unwieldy, but the story it contains is pretty remarkable. For anyone interested in free speech and the origin of free speech, this is quite a good read. Until I had worked my way through this volume, I was of the impression that free speech in the United States was a given ever since the First Amendment was added to the US Constitution. I trust this is a belief many American citizens hold today. It may in theory have been the case, but the practice was an altogether different matter. This man is of importance here. Sir William Blackstone was an 18th century English jurist of great importance to both British and American law. Both nations subscribed to his definition of free speech. Namely, that the principle of free speech was simply defined as your right to speak freely and unimpeded, without any need for you to ask for permission. That, however, did not mean that you were free to speak your mind without the state then seeking to prosecute you, if it was felt you had crossed the line. Freedom of speech simply held you free from any impediment to speaking your mind, but it did not hold you free from punishment for doing so. This meant that the freedom of speech granted the people of the United States in the Constitution was read as simply being their right to speak, without need to seek prior permission. You were free to say what you wanted, just as in the UK, but the state reserved the right to come for you if the powers that be felt you had spoken out of turn. It is in that light that we must understand one member of the Supreme Court of the United States, Oliver Wendell Holmes who sat on the Supreme Court from 1902 to 1932. He was in fact a conservative Supreme Court justice. When a young man, he had fought in the Civil War. As a judge, he became known as a scholar and as a font of pithy opinions. The book, The Great Descent, aside from outlining Holmes's life, takes us through a period of about 18 months in which Holmes, while exchanging letters with progressive legal thinkers of his day, and dealing with cases surrounding free speech concerning the First World War and the First Red Scare in the US following the Russian Revolution, finds his understanding of free speech shaken to the core. Oliver Wendell Holmes did not have some great singular eureka moment. His opinion evolved. He, the stout defender of orthodoxy, began to understand that something was amiss with the prevailing legal opinion on free speech. The case in which he finally put words to these thoughts was in fact lost. His was the minority opinion among the justices of the Supreme Court. Therefore, he dissented. His opinion was a dissenting one. Hence the title of the book, The Great Dissent. The case in question was Abrams versus the United States. I will not go into any great detail, save to say that Mr. Abrams and his colleagues were Russian immigrants and communists, who objected to US intervention in Russia while the First World War was still ongoing. They hence distributed leaflets trying to incite munitions workers to go on strike. 
the prosecution wanted to use the Sedition Act of 1918, alleging they had tried to undermine the US government, to incite resistance to the war against Germany, and to curtail the production of weapons and ammunition. Of course, the interests of Mr Abrams and his communist comrades lay elsewhere and had nothing to do with the war against Germany. But as it was, the Abrams case was lost. Holmes, however, managed to put into words a phrasing which is still seen as foundational today to the modern understanding of American free speech. Many of his definitions and phrasings are seen as canon in the interpretation of free speech under the US Constitution. He did not win immediately. It is fair to say that he did not see victory within his own lifetime. He was ahead of his time. But the Supreme Court of the United States, in its interpretation of the US Constitution, eventually would bow to his great dissent. So here is the text of it. Persecution for the expression of opinions seems to me perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power, and want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. To allow opposition by speech seems to indicate that you think the speech impotent, as when a man says that he has squared the circle, or that you do not care wholeheartedly for the result, or that you doubt either your power or your premises. But when men have realised that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas that the best test of truth is the power of thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. That at any rate is the theory of our constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. Every year, if not every day, we have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy based upon imperfect knowledge. While that experiment is part of our system, I think that we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death, unless they so imminently threaten immediate interference with the lawful and pressing purposes of the law that an immediate check is required to save the country. I wholly disagree with the argument of the government that the First Amendment left the common law as the seditious libel in force. History seems to me against the notion. I had conceived that the United States through many years had shown its repentance for the Sedition Act of 1798 by repaying fines that it imposed. Only the emergency that makes it immediately dangerous to leave the correction of evil counsels to time warrants making any exception to the sweeping command, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Of course I am speaking only of expression of opinion and exhortations which were all that were uttered here. But I regret that I cannot put into more impressive words my belief that in their conviction upon this indictment the defendants were deprived of their rights under the Constitution of the United States, and with these words eventually turned the wheel of history. What is remarkable is not the ability of Holmes, an experienced judge, to define legally the issues at heart, but more so the strength of the man to shift his position, when at last he realised that the orthodox interpretation he had been so committed to was wrong, that he was willing to speak out, irrespective of his being in the minority, and irrespective of the scorn from conservatives this might earn him. This dissent meant more coming from him, 
the man understood to be the great scholar among the justices, but most of all the man understood to be of a profoundly conservative nature, for there were progressives already among the justices, but their views were the views expected of them. Holmes's dissent was more noteworthy, as it came from the insight of a wise old man acting against his naturally conservative inclinations. He knew this meant that many would come to see him as a traitor to their side and the more traditional view of matters. Yet there are few today who would not concede that the grand old man was right. I think the citizens of the United States of America would be well advised, when considering their liberties, to look not only to the founding fathers of their nation, but so too to this great man. A scholar of the nineteenth century, who in old age became a formative figure of the twentieth century and beyond, for his was a breathtaking, brave step into the unknown, a step which set the United States of America on a different path to that of the United Kingdom, a difference in the very principle of the understanding of free speech. Oliver Wendell Holmes took the step which today, one hundred years later, still awaits to be taken in British law. But the great lesson in all this, I suppose, is that the finest constitutional intent cannot give you liberty if the judicial interpretation does not do so. So whereas the great men of the past in eighteenth-century attire grew the idea of free speech, it fell to a magnificently mustachioed Supreme Court justice to find the necessary interpretation with which to grant his countrymen free speech. That is all from the Sabbath Pass for now. Thank you very much, and goodbye. So is speech really free? Well, that's a very good question. And what can be considered speech? The way you dress, the way you wear your hair, right? They even did a hair bill, didn't they? But could it not be the way you carry yourself and the way you live? I'm, you know, it's like when you meet a vegan, you'll never hear the end of it. I'm totally vegan. Or those that are doing paleo, right? They always remind you. Is that not free speech, uh, expressing your lifestyle or being gay or trans? Is that not free speech? It is. So isn't it free speech also to not want to be biomedically enhanced or participate in an experiment? This I just want you to ponder on just for a little bit. All right. So it's about last Christmas. <laughs> um, I'm just going to push over to a nice Christmas song to bring it up and we'll delve into the intermittent camps and Skinner versus Oklahoma. The reason we're visiting these little things is because they're going to be very important coming soon. And key here, as you listen to the music nicely, uh, you must think it's about how the judges interpret the law. I, for myself, speaking of it, at the Ohio Supreme Court, it was evident that there were clear violations of the law against me, and it was stated so. Though some Supreme Court justices decided to dissent in granting me my writ because they didn't like the words that the notary public used, to, for my affidavit, which was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. See, the power that we give to these judges is extremely important. This is why 
your Supreme Court judges are extremely important. This is why Kintaji is a problem, right? You can't find a woman, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, then how is she going to talk about women's rights? <laughs> but it's it's really, really important to understand this because it has a grave, I am gravely concerned that unfortunately because of all these operations that are ongoing and after having a discussion obviously with Millie today um, you know and and this is before we break before we get back in you know there's there's stuff coming down the pipeline that's insane Um, you know we were discussing when I'm having my surgery I'm having it next month I've organized to have it next month Uh, so uh, I'll be I'll do it over, I'll do it on a Friday so that way I could stay in the hospital over the weekend so I don't impose on my children too much uh, being the weekend. Anyway, um, coming down the pipeline is a lot. J6 is convening in a secret meeting this weekend because they want to issue warrants and arrests and criminal referrals. It's coming in hot, and, and we're working really hard with this documentary too, um, to ensure that it's put together correctly, to tell the story of its origins, how J Six came to be. It didn't just happen, and and you'll see that. And so the reason I'm saying this is because we have people that were just arrested and locked up for sedition. Their attorneys need to be looked at. The way it was done needs to be looked at. Judicial review needs to be looked at. Judges need to be looked at. But on top of that, the way we're targeting these vaccines and these mandatory requirements are also, we need to look at it differently. We need to target things differently and we need to target the periphery since we can't target the CNS of the problem. So anyway, let's go to Don't Stop Christmas now. Let's take a three minute break. Defying the laws of gravity I'm a racing car Passing by like Lady Godiva I'm gonna go, go, go There's no stopping me I'm burning through the sky 200 degrees Just while they call me Mr. Fahrenheit I wanna make a supersonic woman of you What we need is truth. That's what we want this Christmas, and we're all going to get it, like it or not. Before we move on to understanding how the Supreme Court justified intermittent camps and what Skinner versus Oklahoma really did, I'd like to read to you a speech that uh, Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes once gave. It was at the 250th anniversary of the first church in Cambridge. And he gave it on February 12th, 1886. And he speaks to the chairman and those there. 600 years ago, a knight went forth to fight for the cross in Palestine. He fought his battles, returned, died among his friends and his effigy, 
Cut in alabaster or cast in bronze was set upon his tomb in the temple of the abbey. Already, he was greater than he had been in life. While he lived, hundreds as good as he fell beneath the walls of Ascalon or sank in the sands of the desert and were forgotten. But in his monument, the knight became the type of chivalry and the, <laughs> the knight became kind of like a uh, <laughs> type of chivalry and the church militant. What was particular to him and individual had passed from sight, and the universal object of what he represented remained. 600 years have gone by, and his history, perhaps his very name, has been forgotten. His cause has ceased to move. The tumulus tide in which he was an atom is still. And yet today, he is greater than ever before. He is no longer a man or even the type of a class of men, however great. He has become a symbol of the whole mysterious past of all the dead passion of his race. His monument is the emblem of tradition, the text of national honor, the torch of all high aspiration through all time. 250 years ago, a few devout men founded the first church of Cambridge. While they lived, I doubt not, hundreds as good as they fell under Fairfax at Marston Moor, or under Cromwell at Naseby, or lived and died quietly in England and were forgotten. Yet if the only monuments of those founders were mythic bronzes, such as that which stands upon the common in the Delta, if they were only the Lycian slates in yonder churchyards, how much greater are they now than they were in life? Time the purifier, has burned away what was particular to them, an individual, and has left only the type of courage, constancy, devotion. And it's simply the figure of the Puritan. Time still burns. Perhaps the type of the Puritan must pass away as that of the crusader has done. But the founders of this parish are commemorated, not in bronze or alabaster, but in living monuments. One is Harvard College. The other is mightier still. These men and their fellows planted a congregational church from which grew a democratic state. They planted something mightier even than institutions. Whether they knew it or not, they planted the democratic spirit in the heart of man. It is to them we owe the deepest cause we have to love our country. That instinct, that spark that makes the American unable to meet his fellow man otherwise than simply as a man, eye to eye, hand to hand, and foot to foot, wrestling naked in the sand. When the citizens of Cambridge forget that they too tread on sacred soil, that Massachusetts also has its traditions, which grow more venerable and inspiring as they fade, when Harvard College is no longer dedicated to truth 
and America to democratic freedom, then perhaps, but not till then, will the blood of martyrs be swallowed in the sand and the Puritan have lived in vain. Until that time, he will grow greater, even after he vanished from our view. The political children of Thomas Shepard, we surely are. We are not all his spiritual children. New England has welcomed and still welcomes to her harbors many who are not the Puritan's descendants. And his descendants have learned other ways and other thoughts than those in which he lived for, which he was ready to die for. I confess that my own interest in those thoughts is chiefly filial. That it seems to me that the great currents of the world's life ran in other channels and that the future lay in the heads of Bacon and Hobbes and Descartes, rather even that of John Milton. I think that somewhat isolated thread of our intellectual and spiritual life is rejoining the mainstream and that hereafter all countries more and more will draw from common springs. But even if we are not all the spiritual children of Thomas Shepard, even if our mode of expressing our wonder, our awful fears, our abiding trust in the face of life and death and unfathomable world has changed, yet at this day even now, New Englanders are still leavened with the Puritan ferment. Our doctrines may have changed, but the cold Puritan passion is still here. And many a man who now hears me, whether a member of that church or not, it may be said, as it was said of Thomas Shepard by Cotton Mather, so the character of his daily conversation was a trembling walk with God. Now, just so you know, Thomas Shepard was the first minister of the first church in Cambridge. And um, that speech was given. It was actually quite an important one because it was more foundational in understanding the origins of Harvard and what it really stands for. So I wanted to highlight that as it was one of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's speeches. So getting to the meat of things and what we need to look at, we need to understand from democracy now even, they discussed, and we're only going to see the first part, the SCOTUS case that led to forced sterilization of 70,000 and inspired the Nazis. Keep in mind that when the Nazis were being tried at Nuremberg, they actually cited the Supreme Court of the United States and the American eugenics and the sterilization of Carrie Buck to get away with what they did. Remember, it was Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., that wrote the majority opinion that ended with three generations of imbeciles are enough. Those that know better, that are better than you, decide who lives and who dies. Now, you may not see that, and you may not accept it at the point right now, right? You may not accept that, but it is so. Today, I found myself uh, running around, uh, aside from my doctor's appointments, trying to get errands done and get Phoebe some new medication. <laughs> I couldn't help but observe people and realize that there are certain levels that we graduate from in life. 
we know them to be, uh, you know, our toddler years, our child tween years, our teen years, our adolescent years. And, you know, we're not really adults till we're 35. But everyone's kept in a system that keeps feeding itself. Uh, as I've said before, you're the hamster on the wheel to consume and being consumed at the same time. And it seems to me that many people are on this cycle of struggle, of suffering, unnecessarily because of people who think just like this justice, who had that come to Jesus moment when it came by on free speech, right? But these people, these elites, these smarter people, the Hararis, the, the Klaus Schwab's, the 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 Bidens, the Obamas, the, you know, sheikhs, all these leaders, which, by the way, it's important to note that today Saudi Arabia booked like one of the biggest deals with China in regards to trade, but, you know, not like anything there, right? But what we see is, is that they have us on this cycle. People are scared to speak or be themselves out of fear of being silenced. I mean, I'm still banned on Twitter and I didn't do anything wrong. I was just on the airplane tweeting, oh my God, it's happening. And I was booted. I still haven't gotten my account yet because I'm not part of the operations. It's an operation. All of it. And that's what's terrible is that you're either knowingly or unknowingly part of this. And you're either willingly or unwillingly participating. It's basically it. This is the reality that you have. And what we also need to figure out is approaches to tackle the issues that are concerning us. This isn't something that you can just take straight to SCOTUS. You have to start in your city or village. Take it to your state court. Take it to your highest state court. And then you go to SCOTUS. See, we have to focus on what needs to be done. I know many of you, and I, I look at your messages, oh, we say your name, we say, it doesn't matter. They already know my name. They're pretending they don't know. They're ignoring on purpose because you're destroying power structures by participating. Keep that in mind. All we needed is 1% and we have it. Keep that in mind. And also keep in mind that the laws are not there to protect us. They have not been rectified. It is clearly still legal to test and conduct forced sterilizations. Let's take a look at Democracy Now! that discuss this. Their part one is quite quite fascinating the way they put it together because they talk about Buck versus Bell. Take a listen. Mental defectives or imbeciles. The person in question was Carrie Buck, a poor young woman then confined in the Virginia State Colony for epileptics and the feeble-minded, though she was neither epileptic nor mentally disabled. In the landmark decision, eight judges ruled that the state of Virginia had the right to sterilize her. Her mother, 
Emma, as well as Carrie's daughter Vivian, then only eight months old, were deemed similarly deficient. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote the majority opinion, concluding, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. The decision resulted in 60 to 70,000 sterilizations of Americans considered unfit to reproduce. The Supreme Court decision had its origins in the eugenics movement, then thriving in the United States. The 1924 Immigration Act was passed with similar intent to prevent immigration by genetically inferior groups, which included Italians, Jews, Eastern Europeans, and countless others in an attempt to improve the genetic quality of the American population. Author Adam Cohen writes about the case in his new book, Imbeciles, the Supreme Court, American Eugenics and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. Adam was previously a member of the New York Times editorial board and a senior writer for Time magazine. He's the co-editor of the nationalbookreview.com. Adam Cohen, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with great us. Great to be here, Amy. Tell us the story of Carrie Buck. In a moment, we'll hear all about how it ties into immigration, eugenics, parallels to what we're seeing today. But start back in the 1920s with Carrie Buck. So she's a young woman who is uh, growing up in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, being raised by a single mother. Back then, there was a belief that it was better often to take poor children away from their parents and put them in middle-class homes. So she was put in a foster family that treated her very badly. She wasn't allowed to call the parents mother and father. She did a lot of housekeeping for them and was rented out to the neighbors. And then one summer, she was raped by the nephew of her foster mother. She becomes pregnant out of wedlock. And rather than help her with this pregnancy, they decide to get her declared epileptic and feeble-minded, though she was neither, and she shipped off to the colony for epileptics and feeble-minded outside of Lynchburg, Virginia. And what happened to her there? So she gets there at just the wrong time. Virginia has just passed uh, a, a, a eugenic sterilization law, and they want to test it in the courts. So they seize on Carrie Buck as the perfect plaintiff in this lawsuit. So they decide to make her the first person in Virginia who will be eugenically sterilized, and suddenly she's in the middle of a case that's headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Adam Cohen, could you explain what kind of medical tests were employed to determine that she was a so-called imbecile? Yeah, terrible testing. These were very primitive IQ tests from the time that really didn't test intelligence at all. One question she was asked was, what do you do when a playmate hits you? And whatever her answer was to that was somehow deemed to be uh, relevant to whether or not she was an idiot, an imbecile, or a moron. That those were the categories? Yes, those were the three categories. And this was a formal uh, hierarchy that was established by the psychological profession at the time and was actually in government pamphlets. So if you were a, of, a, of a mental age of two or younger, you were called an idiot. If you were between three and seven, you were called uh, an imbecile. And if you were eight and, a, and from between eight and 12, you were called a moron. And Carrie and her mother, who was also the colony, were deemed to be morons. And so explain what happened to Carrie after that. Yes. Yeah, so they decide to put her in the middle of this test case to see if the Virginia law is constitutional. And they give her a lawyer who's actually not on her side. It's a former chairman of the Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded's own board of directors. He clearly wants to see her sterilized. He does a terrible job writing short briefs that don't cite the relevant cases. It goes up to the Supreme Court and the court rules eight to one that, yes, the Virginia law is constitutional. And yes, Carrie, who there's nothing wrong with, should be sterilized against her will. And who was responsible for appointing this lawyer to her? 
It was the colony itself. So they chose one of their friends. And she truly had no advocate of any kind on her side. Back then, the American Civil Liberties Union, which has just had just started up, really was kind of pro-eugenics, or at least some of the members around it were. And there were no advocacy groups to look out for people like Harry. So explain what this term eugenics was, what the whole movement was, and who was a part of it, Adam. Sure. So it started in England by, uh, it was the, the phrase, the word was coined by Francis Galton, who was a half-cousin of Charles Darwin. So this was right after Darwin had discovered evolution and survival of the fittest. Galton and his followers said, well, if nature does this naturally, we can speed survival of the fittest along if we decide who gets to reproduce and who doesn't, if we get the fit people to reproduce and we stop the unfit from reproducing. So that was the idea in England. It comes over to America, and it's greatly adopted by the leaders in America. I mean, the people who supported eugenics included the president of Harvard University, the, the first president of Stanford, Theodore Roosevelt, Alexander Graham Bell, and universities across the country taught eugenics. It was very popular in the popular press and in best-selling books. This was a mass movement. People believed we needed to uplift the race by changing our gene pool. Where did Margaret Sanger fit into this picture? She was a eugenicist, and this is a big controversy uh, uh, where exactly she fit in. She wasn't a leader in the movement. She was in part... Uh, and explain who she was. Sure. Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She formed a strategic alliance uh, with the eugenicists uh, in part to get more support for her birth control movement. But she also believed some of this stuff, and she said some bad things at the time. This is a big controversy, though. And on the right, they use it to taint the whole idea of Planned Parenthood, which I think is unfair because Margaret Sanger was actually in the mainstream of, of a lot of progressive thought at the time. As is evidenced by the Supreme Court decision. Now, H1. explain who was on the Supreme Court, who wrote the decision, what these justices believed themselves. Yeah, so this was actually a very fancy court at the time. The Chief Justice was William Howard Taft, who had been President of the United States before he became Chief Justice, the only President to do that. He'd also been a professor at Yale Law School. Louis Brandeis, who was known as the People's Attorney before he joined the court, a great progressive hero, he was on the court. And then, of course, Oliver Wendell Holmes, probably the most revered justice in American history. He was a legendary figure. There have been, there's a movie about him, there was a play on Broadway, of Time magazine. He, he was thought to be the wisest of the judges, and he wrote this terrible decision. Well, I want to go to something that he said in the decision. This is Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who wrote in the majority opinion for the court, the nation must sterilize those who, quote, sap the strength of the state to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. He declared, quote, it's better for all the world if instead of waiting for ex to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifest unfit from continuing their kind. Very shocking. Sorry. Yeah. No, so I wanted to ask you about the fact when you studied at Harvard Law School, and at the time, this justice was considered a hero of the American uh, legal system. So could you explain who he was, what kinds of positions he took, and how he was still revered? Sure. He was a heroic figure. He'd actually been a professor at Harvard Law School before he joined the U.S. Supreme Court. And even when I was at Harvard Law School, there were portraits of him everywhere. He's still a very revered justice. But he came out of a certain tradition. He was uh, a so-called Boston Brahmin. He was from some of the fanciest families in uh, Boston. The Olivers, the Wendells, and the Holmes were all old New England families. He was raised by a father, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who had been the dean of Harvard Medical School. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. actually coined this phrase, Boston Brahmin. 
common. And the idea was that these, these fancy families in Boston were like the Brahmins in India, that they were the highest caste. So he believed this. He wrote about eugenics even before this case came along, wrote about it favorably. So when the case gets to him, he believes that people like Harry Buck, poor, white, uneducated people are much lesser than him. So it's very natural for him to say, of course, we don't need more people like Harry Buck. We need more people like me and my Boston Brahmin neighbors. So that was the philosophy. And it is amazing that to this day, he's still revered in, in law schools because these were some pretty repugnant views. But one reason that can still be the case is that this case is not talked about. It, when I took constitutional law at Harvard Law School, it was not taught. The leading American constitutional law treatise, 1,700 pages that goes into great detail about many, many cases has half a sentence about Buck Bell. They've just sort of forgotten about it and made it not part of Holmes's legacy. Where did the Nazis fit into this picture, Adam Cohen? Yeah, so one of the shocking things about that is that the Nazis actually followed us. We were the leaders in eugenic sterilization. Indiana passed a eugenic sterilization law in 1907, well before the rise of the Nazi party. They were looking to America. And one of the villains in my book is a man named Harry Laughlin, who, runs the, who ran the eugenics record office on Long Island. And he was in correspondence with the Nazi scientists throughout this whole period. They were looking to him for advice about how to set up a eugenic sterilization program. He wrote with pride in his eugenics magazine that they based the Nazi eugenic law on, an, on his American law. Well, can so you explain? That's key. Absolutely. We're not talking about um, Americans uh, looking to the Nazis uh, who supported the Nazis. We're talking about the Nazis using American president. Absolutely. And, and it's shocking also the degree to which there was friendship and cooperation between the American eugenicists and important scientists in America and the Nazis. So uh, Harry Laughlin, this villain of the book, he actually is given a honorary degree from the University of Heidelberg in 1936. That's a year after they purged all the Jews from the from the faculty. He was fine with that because he was actually a Nazi sympathizer. Let's go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue on this discussion. We'll talk about the U.S. model oh, being a model for the well, Nazis. Well, we're not. But also then how immigration law fits into this picture. Now, this is why it's important. Remember, they can deem you an imbecile by law. They can say that you're sucking off the teat of the state, therefore it can go. And I'm pretty sure a lot of us can picture the lady with the blue hair and the arms that are the size of thighs thumping and screaming that she wants to be called Zer or Zay or whatever and you know can't work because have you guys seen that can't work because she's really anxious and stuff she has anxiety so she's she you know she's on welfare because she can't get a job now you're going to say well you know I no one can say that I'm an imbecile you know I work I have my job I'm a productive citizen of society I'm not talking about you and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to fit that description the way the things are now. But as I said, the vaccine was racist and we're watching it now and we're seeing it. But what we're going to see is how these laws are actually implemented and used. Remember when I went to court and all of us are, yeah, this is America, right? Of course, kids have rights, right? I'm the parent. I go to jail if I don't feed it. I don't health insurance it. I don't dress it. I don't school it, right? If I... Don't do any of that to my child. I go to jail. It's a criminal offense. But when it's rights, my child's rights are violated, I'm not allowed to defend it. I'm responsible, but not allowed to defend it. This is bad case law, right? This is why we're in the Sixth Circuit right now. Bad case law, bad cases. 
So these are very important. Now, Skinner versus Oklahoma, kind of like they said, oh, you know, they wanted to kind of like get rid of uh, the stigma, right? But Skinner versus Oklahoma, there is a um, a recording of uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, Skinner versus the state of Oklahoma. It's about a prisoner. I want you guys to take a listen to this. Ex Relatione William Court decided on June 1st, 1942. Please note, this is a reading of the opinion of the court only. This reading does not include Chief Justice Stone's concurrence or Justice Jackson's concurrence. For ease of listening, this reading omits footnotes and legal citations found within the text of the court's opinion. Mr. Justice Douglas delivered the opinion of the court. This case touches a sensitive and important area of human rights. Oklahoma deprives certain individuals of a right which is basic to the perpetuation of a race, the right to have offspring. Oklahoma has decreed the enforcement of its law against petitioner, overruling his claim that it violated the 14th Amendment because that decision raised grave and substantial constitutional questions. We granted the petition for certiorari. The statute involved is Oklahoma's Habitual Criminal Sterilization Act. That act defines a habitual criminal as a person who, having been convicted two or more times for crimes amounting to felonies involving moral turpitude, either in an Oklahoma court or in a court of any other state, is thereafter convicted of such a felony in Oklahoma and is sentenced to a term of imprisonment in an Oklahoma penal institution. Machinery is provided for the institution by the Attorney General of a proceeding against such a person in the Oklahoma courts for a judgment that such person shall be rendered sexually sterile. Notice an opportunity to be heard and the right to a jury trial are provided. The issues triable in such a proceeding are narrow and confined. If the court or jury finds that the defendant is a habitual criminal, and that he may be rendered sexually sterile without detriment to his or her general health, then the court shall render judgment to the effect that said defendant be rendered sexually sterile by the operation of a vasectomy in case of a male and of a salpingectomy in case of a female. Only one other provision of the act is material here, and that is section 195, which provides that Offenses arising out of the violation of the prohibitory laws, revenue acts, embezzlement, or political offenses shall not come or be considered within the terms of this act. Petitioner was convicted in 1926 of the crime of stealing chickens and was sentenced to the Oklahoma State Reformatory. In 1929, he was convicted of the crime of robbery with firearms and was sentenced to the reformatory. In 1934, he was convicted again of robbery with firearms and was sentenced to the penitentiary. He was confined there in 1935 when the act was passed. In 1936, the Attorney General instituted proceedings against him. Petitioner, in his answer, challenged the act as unconstitutional by reason of the 14th Amendment. A jury trial was had. 
The court instructed the jury that the crimes of which petitioner had been convicted were felonies involving moral turpitude, and that the only question for the jury was whether the operation of vasectomy could be performed on petitioner without detriment to his general health. The jury found that it could be. A judgment directing that the operation of vasectomy be performed on petitioner was affirmed by the Supreme Court of Oklahoma by a 5-4 to four decision. Several objections to the constitutionality of the act have been pressed upon us. It is urged that the act cannot be sustained as an exercise of the police power in view of the state of scientific authorities respecting inheritability of criminal traits. It is argued that due process is lacking because under this act, unlike the act upheld in Buck versus Bell, the defendant is given no opportunity to be heard on the issue as to whether he is the probable potential parent of socially undesirable offspring. It is also suggested the act is penal in character and that the sterilization provided for is cruel and unusual punishment and violative of the 14th Amendment. We pass those points without intimating an opinion on them, for there is a feature of the act which clearly condemns it. That is, its failure to meet the requirements of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. We do not stop to point out all of the inequalities in this act. A few examples will suffice. In Oklahoma, grand larceny is a felony. Larceny is grand larceny when the property taken exceeds $20 in value. Embezzlement is punishable in the manner prescribed for feloniously stealing property of the value of that embezzled. Hence, he who embezzles property worth more than $20 is guilty of a felony. A clerk who appropriates over $20 from his employer's till and a stranger who steals the same amount are thus both guilty of felonies. If the latter repeats his act and is convicted three times, he may be sterilized. But the clerk is not subject to the pains and penalties of the act, no matter how large his embezzlements nor how frequent his convictions. A person who enters a chicken coop and steals chickens commits a felony, and he may be sterilized if he is thrice convicted. If, however, he is a bailee of the property and fraudulently appropriates it, he is an embezzler. Hence, no matter how habitual his proclivities for embezzlement are, and no matter how often his conviction, he may not be sterilized. Thus, the nature of the two crimes is intrinsically the same, and they are punishable in the same manner. Furthermore, the line between them follows close distinctions Distinctions comparable to those highly technical ones which shape the common law as to trespass or taking. There may be larceny by fraud rather than embezzlement, even where the owner of the personal property delivers it to the defendant. If the latter has at that time a fraudulent intention to make use of the possession as a means of converting such property to his own use and does so convert it. If the fraudulent intent occurs later and the defendant converts the property, he is guilty of embezzlement. Whether a particular act is larceny by fraud or embezzlement thus turns not on the intrinsic quality of the act, but on when the felonious intent arose, a question for the jury under appropriate instructions. It was stated in Buck versus Bell 
that the claim that state legislation violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment is the usual last resort of constitutional arguments. Under our constitutional system, the states in determining the reach and scope of particular legislation need not provide abstract symmetry. They may mark and set apart the classes and types of problems according to the needs and as dictated or suggested by experience. It was in that connection that Mr. Justice Holmes, speaking for the court in Bain Peanut Company versus Pinson, stated, we must remember that the machinery of government would not work if it were not allowed a little play in its joints. Only recently, we reaffirmed the view that the Equal Protection Clause does not prevent the legislature from recognizing degrees of evil by our ruling in Tigner versus Texas, that the Constitution does not require things which are different in fact or opinion to be treated in law as though they were the same. Thus, if we had here only a question as to a state's classification of crimes, such as embezzlement or larceny, no substantial federal question would be raised. For a state is not constrained in the exercise of its police power to ignore experience which marks a class of offenders or a family of offenses for special treatment, nor is it prevented by the Equal Protection Clause from confining its restrictions to those classes of cases where the need is deemed to be clearest. As stated in Buck versus Bell, the law does all that is needed when it does all that it can, indicates a policy, applies it to all within the lines, and seeks to bring within the lines all similarly situated so far and so fast as its means allow. But the instant legislation runs afoul of the Equal Protection Clause, though we give Oklahoma that large deference which the rule of the foregoing cases requires. We are dealing here with legislation which involves one of the basic civil rights of man, marriage and procreation are fundamental to the very existence and survival of the race. The power to sterilize, if exercised, may have subtle, far-reaching, and devastating effects. In evil or reckless hands, it can cause races or types which are inimical to the dominant group to wither and disappear. There is no redemption for the individual whom the law touches. Any experiment which the state conducts is to his irreparable injury. He is forever deprived of a basic liberty. We mention these matters not to re-examine the scope of the police power of the states. We advert to them merely in emphasis of our view that strict scrutiny of the classification which a state makes in a sterilization law is essential, lest unwittingly or otherwise invidious discriminations are made against groups or types of individuals in violation of the constitutional guarantee of just and equal laws. The guarantee of equal protection of the laws is a pledge of the protection of equal laws. When the law lays an unequal hand on those who have committed intrinsically the same quality of offense and sterilizes one and not the other, it has made an invidious discrimination as if it had selected a particular race or nationality for oppressive treatment. Sterilization of those who have thrice committed grand larceny with immunity for those who are embezzlers is a clear, pointed, unmistakable discrimination. Oklahoma makes no attempt to say that he who commits larceny by trespass or trick or fraud has biologically inheritable traits which 
he who commits embezzlement lacks. Oklahoma's line between larceny by fraud and embezzlement is determined, as we have noted, with reference to the time when the fraudulent intent to convert the property to the taker's own use arises. We have not the slightest basis for inferring that line has any significance in eugenics, nor that the inheritability of criminal traits follows the neat legal distinctions which the law has marked between those two offenses. In terms of fines and imprisonment, the crimes of larceny and embezzlement write the same under the Oklahoma Code. Only when it comes to sterilization are the pains and penalties of the law different. Equal protection clause would indeed be a formula of empty words if such conspicuously artificial lines could be drawn. In Buck versus Bell, the Virginia statute was upheld, though it applied only to feeble-minded persons in institutions of the state. But it was pointed out that so far as the operations enable those who otherwise must be kept confined to be returned to the world and thus open the asylum to others, the equality aimed at will be more nearly reached. Here, there is no such saving feature. Embezzlers are forever free. Those who steal or take in other ways are not. If such a classification were permitted, the technical common law concept of a trespass based on distinctions which are very largely dependent upon history for explanation could readily become a rule of human genetics. It is true that the act has a broad severability clause, but we will not endeavor to determine whether its application would solve the equal protection difficulty. The Supreme Court of Oklahoma sustained the act without reference to the severability clause. We have, therefore, a situation where the act, as construed and applied to petitioner, is allowed to perpetuate the discrimination which we have found to be fatal. Whether the severability clause would be so applied as to remove this particular constitutional objection is a question which may be more appropriately left for adjudication by the Oklahoma court. That is re-emphasized here by our uncertainty as to what excision, if any, would be made as a matter of Oklahoma law. It is by no means clear whether, if any excision were made, this particular constitutional difficulty might be solved by enlarging on the one hand or contracting on the other, the class of criminals who might be sterilized. Reverse. During the Third Reich, the Nazi government forcibly sterilized, sterilized many thousands of people whom the government deemed unworthy of producing offspring. The Nazis weren't the only ones. During that same time, the federal government and several states in America did the same thing. Did such government-sponsored sterilizations comport with the Constitution? In 1927, in Buck v. Bell, the United States Supreme Court upheld a Virginia law that permitted involuntary sterilization of mentally disabled people whose mental disabilities were likely to be passed down to future generations. Later, in 1942, in Skinner v. Oklahoma, the court addressed an Oklahoma law permitting involuntary sterilization of certain habitual criminals. Jack Skinner spent his adult life in and out of prison. Among his felony convictions were theft of chickens and two different armed robberies. During Skinner's imprisonment on his third conviction, Oklahoma enacted its Habitual Criminal Sterilization Act. The act provided that a habitual criminal with at least three felonies involving moral turpitude, was subject to being involuntarily sterilized through a medical procedure. The act specifically stated 
that certain white-collar felony offenses, including embezzlement, weren't included as crimes of moral turpitude. The Oklahoma Attorney General instituted proceedings against Skinner pursuant to the act. Skinner objected that the act violated the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. The trial court overruled his objections. In accordance with the act, a jury was asked to determine only whether Skinner had been convicted of three felonies of moral turpitude and whether a sterilization through a vasectomy would be detrimental to Skinner's overall health. After the jury found that Skinner had three predicate convictions and also that a vasectomy wouldn't be detrimental to his health, the trial court ordered Skinner to be sterilized. Skinner appealed to the Oklahoma Supreme Court, which affirmed the trial court's order. Skinner successfully petitioned the United States Supreme Court to review his case. And that's where the Supreme Court found that, yeah, you can't just sterilize people. You should not sterilize people because it's not the right thing to do and equal protection. Remember when my court case at the Supreme Court cites equal protection. You know, I, I, I thought of this for a second. It's, a, it's one of the statements that we don't use. We, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm, when I'm driving, if I'm speeding, I'm like, damn, got to slow down. Even if it's safe to speed because no one's there, got to slow down because if I get stopped, I'm not Hillary Clinton. I don't get away with things. I don't get a Hillary pass, right? She can kill people, right? And get away with it. Pelosi can embezzle money and get away with it. Obama can weaponize our FBI and CIA and get away with it. Huh. And people can gang stalk and target individuals and stymie free speech and take away our rights and experiment on our children and experiment on us and then force us in order to have a livelihood to comply with these rules, but others do not have to. Equal protection. No one in D.C. was forced to take the vaccine. Equal protection. Nobody in the court system was was forced to take the vaccine. Equal protection. The, these are very important key things. The law is not created on your state and city level to protect you. It's to protect them. The only court in the land that can set the tone as per the Constitution and rectify the wrongs is the Supreme Court of the United States, which I can tell you now, for the next four years, it's going to be very, very busy affirming those rights. So even though we have Kintaji on the panel, when President Trump is officially back in office, we're going to have two more Supreme Court justices placed, which will be key. Like I said, every single one of them will be replaced except for one by the time President Trump is done. Every single one will be replaced except for one by the time he is done. It's imperative because it is the only court in the land that won't repeat mistakes like Buck versus Bell. And they are watching our nation collapse. And they are watching the politics seep into justice. You know, there's many that are complaining, oh, the CIA illegally surveilled me because I had contact with Julian Assange. The question you should be asking yourself is, why are they complaining about that now? Why are they suing the CIA for surveilling 
Americans who had contact with Julian Assange actually being sued. That's a question we should all ask ourselves. Why is the CIA being sued by a group of journalists and lawyers, including Mike Pompeo, because apparently they spied on them while they tried to visit Julian Assange. I want you to think back to all the people that visited with Julian Assange. I want you to think back of the journalists that visited with Julian Assange and CAA assets and understand that when the CIA has a target and you are associating with that target, you are free game. So the CIA is able to watch you. So why file a lawsuit that you know that they are able to legally monitor you? It doesn't make sense. We all know that if the CIA is investigating Julian Assange and you go and have coffee with him, they will be monitoring the shit out of you. Apparently, some journalists and lawyers were compelled to hand over their electronic devices to undercover Global SL, a private security contractor at the, at the embassy at the time before they met with Assange. So if Cassandra Fairbanks went, she'd have to hand over her phone. Hey, why would you go there with your phone? Like, that's your problem. They're a private security contractor, but apparently the company copied that data and passed it along to the CIA directly to Pompeo. Undercover Global and its chief executive, David Morales-Gillen, are also named in the lawsuit. Sounds frivolous, and it sounds like something they want you to pay attention to. Pay no mind. They need not warrants, nor handed over things, to be able to monitor you. The concerns they have is that they were monitored, and now some of them are in trouble. Now, why do I say this? Well, we need to look at the Supreme Court justifying intermittent camps. Listen to the reasoning. Yes, you may not be Japanese. Yes, this may not apply for the Japanese, but this may apply to American citizens, which, by the way, were those Japanese, too. Presents Supreme Court Briefs. Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, December 7th, 1941. December 7th, 1941. Yeah. Japan drops bombs on an American naval base, killing more than 2,400 Americans and injuring 1,000 more. In response, the United States declares war on Japan, officially entering World War II. Increasingly, Americans viewed anyone of Japanese heritage suspiciously. Japanese Americans had already faced racism and discrimination in the country for nearly 100 years. After the Pearl Harbor attack, that racism and discrimination went to the next freaking level as many thought Japanese Americans might be more loyal to Japan than the United States, sharing military secrets with them and stuff or trying to sabotage the war effort. Despite there being no evidence whatsoever that this was happening, Japanese American persecution increased. People bought Jap hunting licenses. Life magazine published an article illustrating how to tell the difference between a Japanese person and a Chinese person by the shape of their nose and height. In 
California, the racism and paranoia seem to be worse. A barber shop there advertised, quote, free shaves for Japs with a disclaimer that read, quote, not responsible for accidents. A funeral parlor advertised, quote, I'd rather do business with a Jap than an American. Several people called for removing all Japanese Americans from Western states and forcing them to live in concentration camps somewhere else. President Franklin Roosevelt, who had a record of being racist against the Japanese, agreed with this idea. He signed Executive Order 9066. It ordered the roundup of 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent to one of 10 concentration camps, officially called, quote, relocation centers. It also said Japanese Americans weren't allowed to be in California at all, as well as much of Oregon, Washington, and Arizona, unless they were in one of the camps, of course. Fred Korematsu was one of the Japanese Americans who said the heck with Executive Order 9066. He stayed in California. He had a girlfriend who was not Japanese American there he didn't want to leave, and just thought Roosevelt's order was wrong. So after his entire family left for one of the camps, he stayed behind, became a welder, and tried not to stand out too much. He changed his name and got a fake ID. Later, he even tried to have plastic surgery on his eyes to look less Japanese. The plastic surgeon who worked on him didn't do the procedure, but took his money anyway. Shortly after this, someone reported him and he was arrested. After his arrest, he never saw his girlfriend again, by the way, eventually Korematsu found himself in federal prison. The American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, reached out to him there and offered to represent him in court. Korematsu said, heck yeah. Together they argued that Executive Order 9066 went against the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Korematsu's loyalty to the United States was never in question. Still, in federal court in San Francisco, he was convicted, given five years of probation and station camp in Utah. He appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals, who agreed with the lower court. He then appealed again, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, hearing arguments in October 1944, with the war still raging on. During arguments, the court considered a similar case from the previous year called Hirabayashi v. United States. That one upheld Executive Order 9066. The court announced its decision on December 18, 1944. It sided with the United States, but this one was certainly controversial. It was 6-3. to three. The court argued that Executive Order 9066 was justified in order to keep the country safe. They said the need to protect Americans from espionage was more important than individual rights. Justice Hugo Black wrote the opinion, but today most say the opinion is pretty flawed. He wrote... Quote, Korematsu was not excluded from the military area because of hostility to him or his race. He was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire. Unquote. Actually, no. That is false. He also wrote, quote, There was evidence of disloyalty on the part of some Japanese Americans. The military authorities considered that the need for action was great and the time was short. Unquote. You're 0 for 2, Hugo. At the time, there was no evidence of that either. Justice Felix Frankfurt chimed in that the Constitution gave the President and Congress these war powers. The three justices who dissented all wrote separate opinions. Justice Frank Murphy passionately argued that the decision was basically the legalization of racism and that this racial discrimination went against everything the United States stood for. 
quote, All residents of this nation are kin in some way by blood or culture to a foreign land, yet they are primarily and necessarily a part of the new and distinct civilization of the United States. They must, accordingly, be treated at all times as the heirs of the American experiment and as entitled to all the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution, unquote. Dang, you tell them, Frank. On January 2nd, 1945, President Roosevelt canceled Executive Order 9066. The camps were shut down, and many Japanese Americans returned home to find their belongings missing or destroyed. Fred Korematsu returned home and did not speak publicly about the case for decades. Flash forward to the 1980s, by this time, most Americans agreed that what the government did to Japanese Americans during World War II was messed up. In 1983, Korematsu's original conviction was finally overturned. In 1988, Congress passed the Civil Liberties Act, which formally apologized to the Japanese Americans affected and awarded payments of $20,000 to each camp survivor, about $43,000 in today's money. Korematsu did speak out in his later years. He died in 2005. In 2009, a nonprofit civil liberties organization called the Fred T. Korematsu Institute was founded. It's currently ran by Fred's daughter, Karen Korematsu. Korematsu v. United States is often considered one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in American history. Today, the case, as well as the treatment of Japanese Americans during World War II, are both seen as major tragedies. On June 26, 2018, in the case Trump v. Hawaii, a case which upheld the president's restriction of travel in the United States by people from several countries, the Supreme Court finally, finally, officially overruled the Korematsu decision. I'll see you for the next Supreme Court. So not long ago, right? Not long ago. It's not that long ago. I don't know why they use, you know, they use black and white pictures just to give you the impression that it was long ago. So not very long ago, we were rounding people up based on their, you know, descent. You don't think they're going to be rounding you up for your blood? You don't think they're going to be rounding you up for your thoughts? You don't think they're going to be rounding you up for, see, President Trump's case versus Hawaii helped. You may not have seen it, but now you do. It is important that all of us pay attention to the laws and see what needs to be fixed. We need to be laser focused and not distracted. Once again, focus, not distracted. Tomorrow we're going to have a fun show. It's going to be more of a T-type show. This show that I did today, I know many of us will be listening to it again and again and again at some point. I've already shown you where the intermittent camps will be. There's actually a list, and they're usually run by, um, you know, ice processing centers. Still in the same place. It's quite important that all of us understand what equal protection means and, and invoke it more often than we do. It's quite fascinating when you finally can see where you need to focus. And that's in avoiding these alleged tragedies. 
Because as you can see, in the 40s and the 20s, they were talking about genetics. I thought that they just got cars and just got electricity and genetics. That you can have a trait to steal chickens, but a white-collar criminal like Pelosi is not considered uh, an offense as others. See, this great experiment, this great experiment, as you keep hearing, experiment, experiment, is all to create the need to come down with a hard hammer. Oh, we have a lot of illegal migrants. Maybe we should put them in specific camps. You know, hey, they're here, so they should be used as cheap labor. You're going to be like, what, Tori? That's not right. (laughs) Your far right wants that. What does your far left want? Everybody for free. I was driving on the highway. 31 trillion something something national debt. Really? Stop it. Everyone gets everything for free. So we can have people like that lady with the blue hair and the thighs for arms stressed out about getting a job or an education. Or maybe we should pay for the degree in uh, gender studies because someone can't find a job except for Starbucks with a degree like that. See, there are a lot of things that make us mad and we feel that they should be held responsible for making stupid choices. But when you decide to be the judge, you, the people, decide to be the judge, well, that's when you're lifting a stone and you shouldn't. So how do we find the middle ground? Laws. Actually enforcing laws. Like for me, every time I hear about Hunter Biden, I still ask, hey, what about the fact that he planned over a year through email with foreign nationals how to smuggle him and talking with people to smuggle a guy that wasn't allowed on U.S. soil to be smuggled through the southern border with the help of the damn cartel so he can go meet Obama and Biden? I think that's a big deal. I think that's one of the biggest deals ever. Or, you know, the attache currying documents to the embassy in Qatar. Like, come on with QIA. Like, this is so dumb. And we keep talking about hookers. I'm glad that the investigation is going to look at the real stuff, not the clickbait that everyone falls down through. Everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, we won. At this point, they've tired you out so much. So you're like, forget Trump. He should have done it this way. He made bad choices. Forget Trump, right? Isn't that what I, so many of them are saying that? And it's like, why? Wow, you would do a better job? Ever been in, the, in a pit of snakes? Pit of snakes. Well, I'll leave that for tomorrow. Because there was a great conversation that I came across with, with Admiral Rogers, too. You guys should hear it because it mentions a guy that was mentioned only by picture on Shadowgate because I didn't want the name to be flat out. Tomorrow, it's going to be a fun episode. It's not going to be a learning experience. I guess it will be. It'll be like, whoops, here's where all this is going. See, I don't want you guys to consider yourselves swept. So many people, well, when's something going to happen? What are you doing? If you're not doing anything, you expect other people to do it for you. Just reading your charter is great. Maybe you don't have the time to do things. Sit with your friend and look through it. Hey, how do we get rid of these people? Where does it spell it out? And what about voting? Does it say that the mayor can override? And what do the people have to do to say, no, fuck no, we're repealing this? Like, what are those steps that we have to do on a local city? village level. It's very important. 
We're going to be really busy doing shit in February of 2023. I'm telling you. Please pull them out. Please read. Please take pride in your community and your local laws, your very local laws. So on that note, all right, but it's last Christmas. Nigga, we gon' be all right. We gon' be all right. Nigga, we gon' be all right. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be all right. Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. But I'ma stop me looking at you from the face down. Or make a living, even boom with the face down. Skimming, now let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in a twilight. With pretty pussy and Benjamin is the highlight. I tell my mama I love her, but this what I like. Lord knows. 20 of them in my Chevy, tell them all to come and get me. Reaping everything I sow, so my karma come in heaven. No preliminary hearings on my record. I'm a motherfucking gangster. Silence for the record. Uh.